Psalm 32 has been asked that we mark that. We're certainly happy, delighted to do that. And may I echo the sentiment that Brother Ted shared earlier that how thankful we are for those men, Brother Lester, Brother Johnson, Brother Gary, who brought those messages last Lord's Day and taught the Bible study classes, did a superb job, as always is the case. And we continue at Pippin to be so very blessed to have those men who not only can, but are more than eager to utilize their talents in that way. This morning, as we continue in our series of lessons, as, a, as we move through the Bible this year, we do come to the honorable estate of now having read 122 chapters of the Word of God. That's somewhat over 10% of the totality of the sacred scriptures that we have now completed as of yesterday. And that brings us to understand then lessons both this morning and evening that will surround and utilize those passages we've read together the last week. Isn't it interesting that as we come near the close of the Lord's life in the flesh, we remember that the closing chapters of Matthew really do cast a remarkable spotlight on the way in which he interacted with the religious leaders of that day and the matter that they brought to him, namely his death. It is the case. We have been reading in Matthew 21, 22, and 23, chapters like that of late. And you'll notice that in that 21st chapter, our Lord entered Jerusalem with such an exciting matter. They placed Him upon that beast of burden. And as He rode into the city, it was with a marvelous note of victory and excitement. They cast palm branches before Him. They welcomed Him into the city. They even made pronouncements of how great that He was. It is in light of all of that, though, that isn't it ironic that just a few days later, the same people would hang Him on a cross. How fickle human beings can be. One moment they lift Him so high as the proverbial king and leader, and just a few days later they were unwilling to tolerate Him, and to the cross they sent Him. In the midst of those events, we find Him teaching. And in Matthew chapter 22 will be our text for today. And we appreciate in the course of that chapter, we find an emphasis, as you can see at the bottom of this slide, an emphasis upon laws of God that we must never, ever forget. It is with that in mind. Let's come to the setting of the text. In Matthew chapter 22, as noted earlier, we find a prescription of our Savior. In His discussion with those about Him, there were so many interesting developments. First, I would ask you to notice these comments. Matthew chapter 22, verse 15 puts it in words like this. Then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. Isn't it interesting? Here was the greatest teacher the world had ever known. He was the most wise, the most profound. He was the most powerful in his ability to take what was so commonly understood like sowing and reaping and teach eternal profound truths with him. And yet here were those who weren't interested in what he had to say other than in trying to find problems with it, entangle him in his talk, ensnare him in what he had to say. That's such a sadness. Such a grand reflection upon the mentality of those who rather than learn from Him, who would be bettered by Him, they were interested more to find fault with what He had to say. And as you and I well know, they never were able to find anything. You'll notice in light of those comments, they even in the verse that followed, 
Then the Pharisees sent not only some of their own disciples, but in fact some Herodians. They sent to be mingled amongst the audience and listen to what the Lord had to say with the intent to entangle him, with the intent to ensnare him in what he had to say. Verse number 16 reads it like this. And they sent out unto him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Master, we know that thou art true, and teachest the way of God in truth. Neither carest thou for any man, for thou regardest not the person of men. You'll notice that they came to Jesus, and as they proceeded to inquire of Him, they did so immediately with words of compliment to Him. You are true, and we know that you don't care for the person of man. By that they meant you aren't prejudiced in what you have to say. You tell it exactly the way it is. You tell it without any consideration for the personal matter in which it might bring. You'll notice that as they complimented Jesus, sometimes today we still appreciate sometimes matters like that can happen. An individual really in the very deceit of his heart desires to entrap, ensnare, or in some way cause problems to the one of whom he is asking the question, but yet he portrays innocence. He portrays honesty. He portrays a sense of wanting to be educated when all along it isn't so. How did Jesus react to these scoundrels? How did He react to the opportunity they presented? Those Herodians of which we read in verse 16. Interesting sorts of individuals. I've tried to make a brief statement about what they were. In that ancient era, there were individuals of Jewish association who felt as if the best way to preserve the opportunity of revisiting the greatness of the Old Testament was to have a member of the Herodian family on the throne. And so they supported them. They encouraged them. Despite the fact the Herods, as you and I remember, were killing babies, they had done any number of other things apart from the way of God, but there were individuals who felt politically that it was in the best interest to have them on the throne. You'll notice they were some whom the Pharisees sent to inquire of Jesus. Verse 17 then brings us to the question of, of the moment. "'Tell us therefore, what thinkest thou?' Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? And now we find that these who had been sent were sent and in their interest and in their desire to cause Jesus to stumble, to discredit Him in front of the people, this was their question. Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? I suppose the issue of the question raised on that occasion is one that has occupied the mind of many in the century since. This matter of tribute, this matter of taxation, this matter of governmental support, if you will, is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? You'll immediately notice with me that Jesus, it says in the next verse, verse 18, he perceived their wickedness. I'd ask you to observe the language the Holy Spirit used to describe this situation. The Lord didn't merely perceive their question. He didn't perceive the stance. He perceived their wickedness. What they were doing was evil. What they were doing stood as a condemned thing in the halls of heaven. And you'll notice Jesus then answered like this, Why tempt ye me, ye hypocrites? 
He directly told it as it was. And isn't it ironic that just a few moments earlier they had said, Thou art a teacher of truth. And yet now he called them directly hypocritical in their actions. And you'll notice beyond that, we now read the following. Show me the tribute money, Jesus said in verse 19. And they brought unto him a penny. The tribute money, which was of course a part of what they contributed to, to, to the government in Rome. Show me the tribute money. They brought him a penny. As nearly as we're able to tell, that particular denomination of money, that coinage was one that was very well known in that day. It was frequently utilized as a pay for, for a day's wage, if you please. And as they presented this... You'll notice it says, He saith unto them, in verse 20, Whose is the image and superscription? Jesus had besought them, commanded them in essence, Show me the tribute money, and they did. But now He asked a continuing question, Whose image and whose superscription is on it? They, it seems, without any delay. In verse 21 said, Caesar's. Immediately we find a reference to that imperial leader of the Roman Empire. That one who occupied the throne in Rome and what a powerful figure he was. It was he who on this occasion, Caesar's, that Roman general, the Roman leader if you will. It is in response to that that it says, Then he, that's Jesus, saith unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. The Lord quieted them amazingly. Because you'll notice immediately that the verse now says, When they heard these things, they marveled and left Him and went their way. Their attempt to entrap Him had failed miserably. Their intent to cause Him to stumble in front of the crowd had failed enormously. In fact, the text says they marveled at what Jesus had to say and proceeded on their way. I'd invite you to reflect with me on that verse 21. That will occupy us really for the remainder of our lesson this morning. Jesus, what He had said that quieted them so, what He had said that caused them immediately to retort into the inner recesses of what they intended. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. As you reflect upon those things and we come to the bottom of that slide, Consider for just a moment the dilemma in which they no doubt thought they would have been able to put Jesus. On the one hand, you have the authorities in Rome. Individuals who had commanded that taxes, if you please, are to be collected. And if Jesus had in any way spoken against the liberty, the obligation of taxation, immediately these Jews and these Herodians would have brought His name to Rome and Rome would have been opposed to Him. But on the other hand, what if Jesus had said it's perfectly fine to pay taxes to Rome? There's nothing improper with that. Well, immediately they would have been able to bring this case to the Jews. For the Jews hated the Romans. And they hated the fact that they had to give of their means and their opportunities to pay for a people who they despised. And so they thought surely that they had Jesus in a dilemma for which He could never extricate Himself. No matter which way He answered, they thought they had Him. How did the Lord reply? And what things did He say? 
Let's build three observations, three lessons out of this context that we have just considered and use it to be of assistance to you and to me. First of all, I would invite you to notice the attitude and the circumstances that brought the question. Here were individuals. They had been planted in the audience. They, at the proper time when questions were allowed to be asked, I suppose, they raised their hand, they brought the question, so what about paying taxes to Caesar? They had made apparently no overt statement in any way otherwise. But yet Jesus said that this was wicked. Maybe there's a lesson in that for us, especially given the world in which you and I now live. It seemingly is so often the case that so long as a person doesn't overtly lie, that he is excused. He can give every pretense he wants as long as he never come out and says anything that can be called an, ex an explicit lie. But yet look at these individuals. They pretended sincerity. They pretended to ask an honest question. They pretended to want to be educated in the wisdom the Master had to offer. And yet Jesus used two words to describe them. One, hypocrites. And also the Holy Spirit said that this was wickedness. Maybe in light of that, you and I can appreciate something as well. You and I then also are guilty of error when, even if we don't straightforwardly tell a lie, if we mislead, we deceive, we give the pretense of righteousness when all along our mind is elsewhere and our heart is bent on causing others to stumble or cause them to fail or to cause them in otherwise to lose their succession. We often find in the Bible that God is interested in the matters of the heart, isn't He? In fact, back a few chapters earlier in Matthew 15, what did the Master there say? What is it that causes a man to be defiled? Is it washing with unwashed hands or eating with unwashed hands? And wasn't it true? There He said it's those evil thoughts that emanate in actions that themselves then that's what defiles the man. These evil thoughts that would include hypocrisy and would include this showmanship that isn't the actual case. Sometimes you and I live in a world where that's done. You dress a man up so that he looks nice, but yet his heart is filled with iniquity and ungodliness, and yet we lift him up and praise him as the best thing sometimes, don't we? Jesus could see their heart. He knew exactly what they were thinking. He knew exactly the intent for which they had come. I realize that you and I can't read a person's heart that way, but may we always be cautious not to allow ourselves to fall into that deceit. So often, Paul had to face those who felt that way as well. Here was a proclaimer of the truth, and as he worked his way around the Roman Empire, in so many instances he found himself in cities and in locations who in fact were desirous of his death. But all along, they would try to make friends in the ways that they could. Tragic, isn't it? God wants you and I to be those individuals of honesty and sincerity. Aren't we told in 2 Corinthians 8.21 to provide things honorable in the sight of all men? In the sight of all men. To provide that which is honorable. And aren't we told in Philippians 4.8, Think on things that are true and honest and just, and pure, and lovely, and of good report. 
And if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things, the inspired writer said. Maybe that challenge, as noteworthy as it might be, brings us to appreciate the next thought as well. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Put yourself for just a moment into the placement of those individuals in the first century. Christians. Rome was an imperial leader. You realize that the Caesar that sat on the throne was often a wicked man. There is no question about that fact. Many of the Caesars were given to the most heinous of crimes. We remember even some like Nero who we are told from a historical standpoint there's strong evidence of what the sad kind of life the man led and the kind of evil he brought about in the way that the empire suffered because of him. Many of those Roman leaders were very sinful men and they made no pretense about it. Jesus nonetheless said, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. You and I sometimes live in a land where the president doesn't do what you and I wish he would. He doesn't enact the laws that we would prefer, and he does not live a life that you and I would think is respectable. You'll notice he still says, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. It would seem to me the civil government then is a matter of some interest to you and to me. That word render that the Lord used on this occasion, it literally means to reward, it means to pay, it means to deliver. It literally thus carries with it a strong note of appreciation, doesn't it? And He doesn't excuse it. You render so long as you think it's that it's appropriate. He does say, doesn't He, render under Caesar the things that are Caesar's. I would ask you to notice as we come to the bottom of that slide and to the very top of the next one that these things that we render unto Caesar do remind us by the very usage of the word that there are obligations and duties that are to be directed to the, to the civil authorities. These duties and these obligations include, among other things, that support that they have required of us monetarily. The Bible has much to say about that, doesn't it? We could go back as far, I suppose, as 1 Samuel. And we notice in the 8th chapter of that Old Testament book that God had something unforgettable to say to the people of that day. You'll recall that. To that point, they had been led by, in essence, a, a the theocratic consideration. They had no president. They had no other civil government. God was their leader. However, in chapter 8, they said, We want a king. Give us a king that we may be like the nations round about us. God encouraged Samuel to, in fact, say some things to them before they made their final decision. And so, God, through Samuel, said, You need to be aware that if you have a king, here are some of the things he'll do. He will take your sons and put them into military service. He will confiscate your lands to pay for himself and for all of his servants. He'll take your daughters and he'll make them bakers and cooks and confectionaries to take care of him and his household. He will take your daughters, your sons, your possessions, and he will have the right to do it. Do you still want a king? And in verse 20 they said yes. And so it is that our civil government does take of us. They 
take our individuals and put them into service. By eminent domain, they can take our property. But God still says, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. We still have that obligation to support that which is rightfully belonging unto them. You'll notice these thoughts then come before us. This authority vested in the civil government, it is an authority vested from the very attribute of heaven, isn't it? In Romans 13, beginning in verse 1, There is no power but of God. Let the powers that be be subservient to those powers. As you and I think about the power to which Paul referred there, it was the civil authorities. And he said, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. In 1 Peter 2.17, the inspired apostle there reminded us to honor the king. When we think about the nature of that Roman Empire and the centuries that have passed since, it is still something to keep in mind that as you and I give that respect that's rightfully due according to the things of God, May we always, though, understand that the highest of all power still resides in heaven, doesn't it? Peter still said that we ought to obey God rather than men. There could then conceivably be a time when the government might command something and you and I, by right of Christianity, would have to refuse. We would have to, in fact, not submit to that commandment. May we have the courage and the fortitude like Peter to do that very thing if that comes, Acts 5.29. May we say that as Jesus made reference to this statement, render to Caesar what's Caesar's, it brings us to the very last observation. And this appears to be the thing that overwhelmingly stumped the Herodians and Pharisees. Jesus went on to say, render unto God the things that are God's. As you'll notice in these comments... Jesus here lifted our considerations to such a high plateau. Render to God the things that are God's. And immediately those Pharisees themselves were aware of the dilemma Jesus had put them in. Had they rendered to God what He rightfully deserved? They were the supposed religious leaders and they were the ones who were influencing the people and they knew by what He had said. Some of the previous parables like the, the wicked husbandman, in Matthew chapter 20, they knew He spoke that relative to them. And they knew that they hadn't given to Him the attention that He rightfully deserved. And they themselves had so often been guilty of turning His laws into their own convenience. Hadn't Jesus said back in Matthew 15 about the nature of teaching for doctrines, the commandments of men? Matthew 15, 9. You'll notice that as Jesus made this statement to them, they had nothing more to say. Render unto God the things that are God's. So what are some of these things that you and I should be sure to render unto God? It is true that there's a difference here. If you and I refuse to submit to the authorities as we should, like pay our taxes, they may send and take us to jail. They may confiscate our paychecks and other things. However, you'll notice if we fail in our rendering to God, God doesn't wait with a spear at the back door to kill us. But are there other things that will ultimately cause us to be lost eternally? I'd ask you to think about some of these things. What are some things that God does deserve and we had better render them to Him? Or else we shall find ourselves on the short end of His graciousness. 
I've listed but a few, but I think the pattern is clear. Look at some of these things we find in the Scriptures. There is a central aspect to glorifying His name. As Christians, you and I wear the name of His Son, and as such, we are to be an open and living testimony every moment of every day for that which is the gospel. Does that characterize my life and yours? Or is Monday a very, very sorry spectacle compared to Sunday? We give the pretense on Sunday of righteousness and attendance at church services and prayer and honesty, but then Monday, no one would know it. The language we speak, the places we go, the things others see in us would bear no resemblance to what they would have seen 24 hours earlier. That's a shame, isn't it? And that just ought not be. In fact, you and I are in this very situation. We are not rendering to God if that's characteristic of our life. And the attendance at the services, that is the least that you and I can do in the faithfulness of Christianity. When the doors of the Lord's house are opened and saints are gathering to meet, where am I if I am in any place other than there and could be? I am failing to render to God that which He so easily deserves. The attendance at the services, Sundays and Wednesdays, are special times of encouragement and enrichment, and there are times when the very attribute of God is lifted so high. Unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Ephesians 3.21 You'll notice those thoughts perhaps bring us to a very attribute of this context. What about our monies? We sure render to the state because they take it. Do we render to God the things that are God's? Do we give as we have been prospered? You and I have a record before us on the wall of what we contribute to the cause of the Lord. I'm making no reflection or judgment on that. I just ask, are each of us giving as we have been prospered? Only you and I know the answer to that. May I submit that on the day of judgment, God will bring it to bear. If it is a matter against us, if it is that which is improper, we haven't rendered to Him as we should. It is a question that each of us must ask. You'll notice another one. Do you and I glorify Him by giving attention to His Word? He says, I will meditate in thy precepts and have respect unto thy ways. I will delight myself also in thy statutes. I will not forget thy word. Psalm 119, verses 15 and 16. Does that characterize you, me? Or in fact, is it a very lesser statement concerning your situation and mine? Render unto God the things that are God's. As I stand before an audience like this, I know I speak to so many who are so mindful of the blessings that God has showered and lavished upon us. Our health, the opportunity of living in a place where freedom is still heard in so many ways, the opportunity to study the Word whenever we want. Are we as thankful to God as we should be? We're told in Ephesians 5 verse 20 that we should give thanks in all things. How often does your prayer life and mine incorporate thanksgiving? A simple assertion of thanksgiving who's made all this possible. Render unto God the things that are God's. As we close this lesson, perhaps one final observation. 
we do also see in this book of Matthew that statement in which in Matthew 22, later this same chapter, the greatest of all the commandments, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, with all thy mind and with all thy strength. You see, our God is so great, so amazing and so awesome that that is what He deserves and that is what should be rendered to Him. Are you and I failing in that or are we successful at directing our love, our heartfelt love to Him? We are told that perfect love casteth out fear, 1 John 4, verses 18 and following. This very day there might be an individual in this audience, one or more in fact, who upon a consideration of what we have considered this morning, realize that you have not rendered to God what He deserves. Maybe you've never become a Christian. You've known about how good He's been to you. He sent His Son to die for you. But to this point, it really hasn't meant anything to you because you haven't been baptized. You've not rendered obedience to the gospel. Let today be the day. We would be delighted to celebrate with you as would the, the heavenly chorus, Luke 15, 7. Today, that plan of salvation reads, you need to repent of your sins. You need to confess His name and you need to be baptized. If you have at one time known the association with God, you've known what it was like to be a Christian, and you've known what it was like to render to God what belongs to Him. But over time, Satan has had the mastery. He does try with great efficiency to pry you and I apart from Jesus. He wants to sever us from the great love and graciousness of God, and He wants you and I not to render to God what belongs to Him. Because you see, He knows if He can accomplish that, He has brought a new master into our life. And Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters, Matthew 6, 24. Today, which master are you serving? If you need to come back to Jesus, we pray for you and with you, in this particular moment, this hymn of encouragement has been chosen. We'd be delighted to serve you in any way that we can. Won't you come while together we stand and sing?